this week on the Back Table Podcast. Can you tell us the name of your contrast allergy? Now, other studies in pharmacology literature have estimated that before counseling with a pharmacist, patients are about 60 to 70% accurate in being able to name their drug allergies. And after counseling with a pharmacist, patients are maybe 80 to 95% accurate in terms of knowing their own allergies. But when we ask patients, can you name your contrast allergy? Would you care to guess what percentage could? 25%. 1.6. 1.6% of patients who have a contrast allergy were able to say which one it was. And that's, we've just got to do better than that because if patients don't know, then we're not going to be able to give them something different. So I even called because there were so few, five out of 307 patients who knew what they were allergic to, I even called them and said, you called, you called the five, the five patients said, it was a a short list. So I called them and I said, why is it that you knew when most people did not? And the, the answer that I got repeatedly was when I had my reaction, the technologist or the radiologist told me what I had been injected with and they gave it to me in writing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things endovascular and minimally invasive. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our great website, which is www.backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a written review, or feel free to reach out to us on social media. Let us know how we can make this podcast a better resource for our endovascular community. And we're going to do our best to make that happen. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See RadPad.com for more information and contact info at RadPad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. Today, we'll be talking about contrast and specifically allergic reactions to contrast agents. To help us with this discussion, we have now a friend of mine, Dr. Cullen Ruff. Cullen is a diagnostic radiologist based out of Virginia, associate professor at the University of Virginia and author, not just an author of research papers like many of us are, which he also is, but author of a book called Looking Within, Understanding Ourselves Through Human Imaging. Cullen, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. I'm happy to talk about this issue and hope that we can make all of our work a little more streamlined and efficient in the sake of patient care. Awesome. Well, first, uh, we tell the audience, uh, we have a big uh, vascular community with interventional radiologists, vascular surgeons, uh, and also um, some diagnostic radiologists. Will you just tell us um, your background, training, and kind of what your practice looks like right now? Sure. So I am a graduate of the University of North Carolina Medical School. I was chief resident at the University of Colorado. I did an abdominal imaging fellowship at Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and I have been with my current practice, Fairfax Radiology Centers, for over 22 years, and that is the biggest private practice in the Washington, D.C. area. We have three hospitals that we cover as well as, well, I don't even know, 14, 16 offices at this point. (laughs) It's a big practice. It's 90 uh, radiologists. And although I am not a vascular interventional radiologist, I do actually a whole lot of uh, CT and ultrasound uh, intervention. And this issue of contrast allergies has just become an interest of mine over the years because of some patient uh, encounters and then seeing uh, 
what happens with the ordering of studies and the delay of studies being ordered or performed due to some uh, misunderstandings about contrast. And it's something that we all use every day. And there have been several important studies that have come out in the past few years, including a few that have come out in the past few weeks. And I'm, I'm really delighted for the opportunity to be here to try to clarify what little I can so that we can all have a little more consistent understanding of the issues of contrast and allergies and prevention and when we can and cannot do studies on people. That's great. Well, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, also, I'd like to say that uh, I did my fellowship at Georgetown. I was at uh, an RA resident, uh, I think 2014 and 2015. And I, I heard about the Fairfax group, big group. I remember just a little under a hundred guys and y'all were, y'all were forced to be reckoned with and had a really great reputation in town. Well, thank you. Fortunately, um, I have been very lucky to be there because there are some very talented and smart people in my group. It's nice to have that degree of subspecialization where you've got people who are sort of reliable experts when you need something specific to go to. No, for sure. For sure. All right. So let's uh, back up and just look at kind of contrast reactions in general. So like the, the 10,000 foot view, as we call it sometimes. So let's just, uh, for the audience, like define contrast reactions. Like what, what exactly are we talking about with iodinated uh, contrast reactions? Okay. So again, we're talking about the iodine-based iodinated contrast, which is used most commonly for vascular procedures as well as for CT scans. And the, the contrast can occasionally induce an allergic-like reaction. And I want to say, well, we may say allergy for the rest of the podcast, but technically it's considered allergic-like because it's not a true antibody immune type reaction, but it's more of a hypersensitivity. Uh, the, to be honest, the mechanism is still incompletely understood. It's, it's speculated that it may be sort of immune cell mediated, basophil or mast cell. But nonetheless, people have allergic-like reactions, the most common ones being skin, whether it be hives or rash. Some people will have a more serious reaction where they have shortness of breath. And then, of course, more concerning is if people start to have throat closure or an anaphylactoid reaction. So, yeah, I'll also echo that sentiment. For the purists out there, we'll probably just say allergic reactions, but it's really allergic-like reactions or anaphylactoid reactions because... We don't know if it's really IgG or IgE mediated, which is actually kind of surprising for the the near ubiquitous use in radiology and then, you know, also vascular and IR procedures or, you know, anyone who's doing endovascular work. You would think we would just know so much more about it. You would think so. But one one inevitable and recurring reminder that I have is we actually don't know so much as we think we do about a lot of subjects, right? I mean, uh, we don't have to go off on tangents, but we had men on the moon around the time the government was willing to acknowledge that repeatedly breathing tobacco smoke into your lungs is perhaps not a good idea. And we had smartphones around the time we understood the appendix has a purpose in our body in terms of being a reservoir for the healthy bacteria that we all need in our colon. So we have a lot of knowledge yet to go and we're just doing the best we can one year at a time, right? I can almost bet that there's a handful, there's not a handful, there's probably a lot of our, our audience members when you just talked about the appendix having a use, they're like, what? What is he talking about? But uh, don't worry, we'll, we'll link to something in the show notes about uh, about the appendix, but but we will push on. So now that we've talked about like you're defining kind of contrast reactions, can uh, you talk about the difference between what some people may um, qualify as an adverse reaction to contrast versus like the allergic or allergic-like allergic light reaction? 
Absolutely. So the older agents that were around for decades, the older ionic ones, tended to, first of all, be a little more allergenic, still a low percentage, but they also had a more common rate of having a physiologic symptomatic reaction, and that could be uh, a feeling of warmth or flushing. Some people got nauseated, um, would induce vomiting sometimes, those type of sensations, which are not pleasant, and I can understand why the patients might not want to receive it again, but those are not allergic-like reactions. They were simply side effects, uh, physiologic reactions from the medication itself. Now, the non-ionic, uh, remember, contrast is not a single uh, drug, of course. It's a, it's a drug class. And the non-ionic agents first started coming out. Uh, 1985 was when the FDA first approved. Um, and if you don't mind my using trade names, just because it's what more of us are familiar with, I'm not. Yeah, of course. I'm not, absolutely. You know, don't mean to be commercially biased. I'm, I'm treating them all equally. But uh, Iohexol or Omnipake was the first to get FDA approval. And then there have been several other non-ionic low osmolar agents or hypoosmolar uh, agents come out since then. And these tend to be less allergenic and also better tolerated by the patient. So, so 85, because I read a paper that you had sent to me, I mean, your paper. Um, so 85 is kind of uh, a cutoff point. Would you say that like when you're talking to patients about their allergic reactions and they said, you know what, doc, I had an allergic reaction to contrast where you know, X, Y, Z happened to me in 75, there's a big difference between that description and saying, hey, my throat closed up uh, after I had a CT scan last year. That's correct. Because we know that if it was before 1985, that it had to be one of the older ionic agents that are not commonly used anymore. And in fact, even though the FDA approval happened in 1985, the use of ionics persisted well into the early 2000s because those agents were cheaper. And I know my own practice routinely used an old ionic agent into the early 2000s until we finally realized, you know, let's just, uh, let's just do the right thing, even if it costs a little more because it was better for the patients. It was better for the workflow of the technologists. And, and gradually these, I think in most places, the old ionic agents have been phased out. Yeah. So that was actually one of my next questions. Like, I know we can't speak to uh, some places all around the world and not, not every practice, but is it safe to assume that in this day, maybe within the last decade, that if you're dealing with a contrast reaction from a CT scan or something, that it's uh, a non-ionic compound? That's my, that's my belief in our country. Yes. All right. So let's also talk a little bit about types of or, or the range of allergic-like reaction you can have? Because I, I think there's, you know, anything from uh, as severe as anaphylactoid, uh, patients with uh, difficulty breathing and airway compromise to patients with, you know, maybe they developed hives, you know, a week after the contrast administration. Can you kind of talk about the spectrum of which we can see allergic-like reactions? Sure. Well, hives or some sort of rash, that is the most common reaction. And it's usually not days later. It usually occurs within the moments after the injection. There can be delayed presentations, mm -hmm. but most of the time it's going to be while the patient is still in the office. That is considered, if that's all it is, and there are no issues with breathing, then that's considered a mild reaction. And the patient is certainly eligible to have another injection in the future. But as we're going to get into, we'll talk about how you handle patients who have had prior uh, allergic reactions. Less commonly, you get into patients who have a little trouble breathing. There may be changes in blood pressure or heart rate, 
And then the most severe being the, the anaphylactoid throat closure. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also worth mentioning uh, with adverse reactions that vasovagal reactions are fairly common. So, you know, hypotension, bradycardia can occur. And would you say that would be more common than these allergic-like reactions? Oh, I think so. The allergic-like reactions are, it, it, it varies depending on what study you look at. Right. It's um, hard to narrow that. It's hard to uh, zero down on exactly how common they are, right? It really is. And part of that, as we're going to discuss, is because of the confusion about contrast allergies that not only patients have, but they're referring physicians and even technologists and radiologists. Yeah. Well, let's let's do a little bit to start like unwinding that. So like what are some of the uh, common misconceptions about contrast allergies or quote unquote iodine allergies? And like, how do we tease that apart from like the just adverse reactions? And then and then we'll and then what I will set you up for later is then we'll go back and talk about how we can talk about not just like contrast reactions as a class, but zero in as like contrast reactions specifically to what agent you had. Sure. Well, the way I I like to start looking at this is a hypothetical scenario, which sounds ridiculous, but I think it brings home the point. Let's take one of the oldest antibiotics around, and that's penicillin G. Uh, Back since the 30s or 40s, if someone has an allergy to penicillin G, you put that in their medical record as a listed allergy. It would never occur to somebody to say, well, they're allergic to antibiotics. And you know what? Antibiotics contain carbon. Why don't we just call it a carbon allergy, (laughs) even though that's not really the component of the molecule that they're allergic to, but let's just call it that for slang. That sounds so ridiculous, but unfortunately that's precisely what we've done in the field. And this started long before you and I were born. When people, instead of calling the contrast allergen by name, lump it together as a class of contrast agent allergy and then use slang of iodine, even though iodine is a component of the molecule, but not what the actual allergen is. So what is there about iodine allergies? Like when someone said that I have an iodine allergy, that's really a misnomer, right? The term iodine allergy needs to be removed from our medical vocabulary. And there have been studies for years that have come out disproving the claim of an iodine allergy. And in fact, only within the past week or two, since this podcast was already arranged, there was a really important study that came out in the American Journal of Health uh, System Pharmacy that looked at 70 years worth of history and basically discredited any claim that iodine itself is part of the, the allergen. We know that iodine is a mineral that we all need to live. It's so important that it's put into our salt supply right. so that people don't have iodine deficiency. It's in every multivitamin that people are going to take. And iodine is a component of our thyroid hormone, which regulates our cellular metabolism. So we all need it to live. And therefore it's nonsensical to say that somebody can be allergic to it. And then the problem comes not just when you use the term iodine as a slang to refer to iodinated contrast in general, but people use the term iodine allergy to refer to at least two other things that are completely unrelated to contrast. One of those is iodine-based soap, which people can have a skin allergic-like reaction to, but it's not to the iodine itself. It's a greater part of the molecule. And then the other term that people use is for a shellfish allergy. Some people still use the slang term iodine to mean shellfish. And I'm not really sure 
how that ever came about, but food allergies, whether it be shellfish, dairy, peanuts, gluten, those are, tend to be protein allergies. And in case of shellfish, it's believed to be a protein called tropomyosin, but these allergies have nothing to do with each other. We don't, I don't mean to sound flippant or glib, but I've never worked in a radiology department that offered shrimp tacos after the CT injection was done. We're not giving people anything that's shellfish-based and the, the betadine soap or the, the iodine-based soap is unrelated as well, which is why I think, I think the term iodine allergy needs to actively be removed from all medical vocabulary and from electronic medical records as a, as a valid allergy choice. And so also like just touching back about that shellfish allergy, just to unwind that a little bit more. So if someone has a shellfish allergy, I think this, mo this is pretty commonly known, but I'm never sure. If you have a shellfish allergy, it doesn't even predispose you from uh, or predispose you to an allergic reaction to contrast materials, right? That is correct. So one of the best references is the ACR, American College of Radiology Manual on Contrast Media, which everyone can access online and it's updated just about every year. It's an excellent resource, has a lot of good references, and that uh, manual on contrast media has followed this policy for some time that there is no, you don't take anybody with a reported shellfish allergy and treat them any differently with regard to a contrast injection. As long as they've never had a, an actual contrast injection, you treat them the same as everyone else. Got it. And the same thing with betadine. So if someone's said, you know, I had a surgery a year ago, they used betadine, it broke me out terribly. You still treat that person with the same uh, risk profile as someone who has had no reactions to iodinated contrast or? That's absolutely correct. They're unrelated substances. They have nothing to do with each other. Okay. So if we, if we think iodine allergy should be removed, what should we be telling patients when they have an allergic reaction? So let's just say like, so we'll go back to a scenario where a patient has an allergic reaction to a uh, non-ionic or a recent contrast allergy, like during a CTA or whatever, like what should we be telling that patient or what should we as the physicians or some, some of the technologists, what should we be documenting? The first thing you document is the actual contrast agent given by name, just like you would any antihypertensive or any antibiotic or any other drug that a patient has an allergic reaction to, because What's most important as we're going to discuss here is the next time this person needs a contrast injection is you can give them something different. Just like if someone is allergic to, we'll use penicillin G as the, the rogue antibiotic example here. If someone's allergic to penicillin G and they need an antibiotic, what makes more sense to you to give them the antibiotic that they're allergic to plus steroids to premedicate, or does it simply make more sense to give them a different antibiotic that they've never had? And that's the, what we're going to discuss here. That's the same thing when it comes to contrast. We have to know by name what people have reacted to so that we can give them something different because giving people a different agent is the best way to prevent a future reaction, much more so than steroid premedication. So in the, in the situation, so another scenario, so if a patient has an allergic reaction and, and I'm going to ask you to use uh, trade names as well, um, like of Omnipake 350, then if that patient comes back um, having had uh, a documented allergic reaction, you would uh, recommend as like the radiologist that, hey, let's try something different like Isoview or Visipeg. Is that right? Absolutely. So Isoview, Visipeg, Optiray, Omnipeg, those are, those are some of the most commonly used current low osmolar uh, and lower allergenic agents. And yes, you would simply choose a different one. And if you had that patient to see, like, say you knew that they were coming in ahead of time, 
What about the pre-medication protocols? I think it depends on the severity of the reaction. Although I will say the latest studies that have come out have actually shown very little. I mean, very little to nearly no benefit with steroid premedication in the patients who've had the most severe reactions. Right. So there have been some other studies that have said, and I think this all depends on the study design. There's always going to be some inherent differences in terms of who's included, who's excluded, how the data is looked at. There have been other studies that have shown that uh, steroid premedication, in addition to changing the contrast agent given, is even more effective than changing the agent. But changing the agent is the most important component, more so than the steroid premedication. Right. And, and it's fair to say that, I mean, I know that my practice mirrors this, we put a huge emphasis on the steroid pre-medication protocol, and we rarely talk about changing the agent, but that's why I was so interested in having you on because, I mean, that really needs to be the discourse about changing the agent, focusing on like what they had an allergic reaction to, and then using something slightly different. That's right. And what we'll talk about on our show here is the fact that it's hard to know what the patient was allergic to because the focus of our study was to see just how little the patients with a contrast allergy know about their own allergy. And unfortunately, their knowledge is quite limited and there is a large opportunity for us to not only educate ourselves, the radiologists and the technologists, but definitely the patients and their referring ordering doctors. So if you had it your way, so if you had your druthers and you had full control over the radiology department, which for all I know, maybe, maybe you do at a couple of your hospitals. I most but- definitely do not. I think the first thing <laughs> I do is give myself a day off a week. Hey, Backtable listeners, this is Aaron Fritz. Before we move on with the episode, I want to tell you about a new show coming out on the Backtable Network this December. It's the Backtable Innovation Show, where hosts Brian Hartley, Eric Gantwerger, and myself We'll be bringing you stories from physician innovators and med tech founders who are helping to shape medicine through health tech. We received so much great feedback from the innovation series over the last year with episodes like the origin story of the Palma stent with Julio Palmez and starting a med tech company with Mahmoud Razavi that we decided to make a whole show dedicated to showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of these individuals and hopefully inspire others. Keep an eye out for it wherever you get your podcast iTunes, Spotify, or Backtable.com. And be sure to follow the new show at underscore Backtable INN on Twitter and Instagram for the latest. So clearly we've mentioned that we need to be documenting the exact agent that's being used. So no longer contrast allergy, certainly not iodine allergy, but contrast allergy and specifically allergic reaction to uh, isoview. And then after that also would recommend like the, the text nursing and, you know, the radiology staff would recommend or, or would uh, document the type of reaction, severity, um, what else? Well, those are the most important things. So again, knowing what the patient had and reacted to so that you can use something different, mm-hmm. understanding the severity of the reaction. If the patient's allergy was remote and they don't remember when or where it occurred, then you have to do the best you can. So again, if you know it was before 1985, it was basically certainly an old ionic agent. If it was somewhere between that period and the early 2000s, you may have to dig because a lot of people were still getting older ionic agents. And you have to try to do the best you can with regard to old record obtaining. The patients, I can tell you, the patients are usually not going to know as we'll 
as we'll discuss with my own study, but it's one of these changes we all have to make in order to make it better next year, even though it may be a little cumbersome right now. Right. So there's some, basically there's some backup work that we have to do with existing allergies. So like when, so there's a little bit of unwinding that we really have to do in terms of patients who come to the radiology departments and say, I have an iodine allergy, right? That's right. So the first thing you, I mean, but there are things we can do to make the situation clear and more efficient for everyone. You, you first do need to tease out what do they mean by that? Because again, that can mean at least three different things depending on whom you ask. So that may mean a contrast allergy. It may mean a betadine or an iodine soap allergy. It may to some people mean a shellfish allergy. So first you try to distinguish what the people are talking about when you can remove the food allergies and the topical soap allergies, then you just focus on the intravenous contrast allergies. And if you can't whittle it down any better, you can at least say, rather than saying that someone's allergic to iodine, at least specify that it was some unknown iodinated contrast agent. If you know it was before the mid eighties, then you can even add further that it had to be an old ionic agent, but you do the best you can. Gotcha. And, and I think that's one of the, the things that we had pushed back um, with our techs. We thought about uh, taking out iodine allergy from uh, the Epic drop-down list. And not that the, the techs were opposed to that, but their um, argument was that, you know, they, they now understood that you can't have an iodine allergy, but a lot of these patients uh, who were uninformed were using iodine allergy as a way of talking about they had a reaction to, you know, CT contrast dye. and. I mean, and so I, I think it's just like a lot of, it's, it's kind of then it's just the, the labor or the work of going through and like spending time with the patients to, to kind of really tease apart, like what exactly they had a reaction to. Well, but there are things that we could all do that would be a little more efficient. First of all, some of these changes or implementations we're making in my practice this fall, based on our own paper and some of these other studies, we want to have all this information available on our website. We want to make it available to patients when they're scheduling a ACT procedure when, or, a, or a vascular interventional procedure. Mm-hmm. And we're planning on mailing out something to all of our referring docs explaining the differences. Because the problem, remember, if, if one patient is under the belief that, let me just give you a scenario. Let me just give sure. you something that actually happened. We had a case, uh, in going through all the data, I found at least one case where the technologist called the covering radiologist and said, the patient has never had contrast, but had an anaphylactoid reaction to shellfish. The radiologist made the decision, which um, was unfortunate, of saying, we'll go ahead and withhold the contrast just to be safe. Well, that patient was now had their contrast study with, they had contrast withheld when they came to us, that patient will probably never consent to getting IV contrast unless they have a whole lot more education because this radiology practice withheld it. But it's not just that one patient, their doctor now knows that we withheld contrast on someone with a shellfish allergy. And therefore the doctor may never order a contrast study again on anybody with a shellfish allergy. So you, you have to look at the broader picture here the changes have to occur in order to get the right patients to having the right study and to not have these delays in care, which include delaying the study because people may be getting unnecessary steroid premedication, which takes hours. 
It's actually one of the things that I think that the ACR manual uh, references is that the pre-medication protocols in and of themselves are fairly low risk. And I think that's one of the reasons they they continue to persevere is that, and it's like, oh, what's the downside, right? You're talking about three doses, maybe two doses of steroid, you know, about half a day before you receive your contrasted study. But I think like the real downside with the, the pre-medication protocols is that there can be a delay in patient care, added cost to the patient. It's one more barrier to entry that, you know, can already be kind of a, a daunting process for just like the layperson. All of that is true, but the other downside is the pre-medication does not work nearly oh, so effectively. Yeah, I guess I should have mentioned that also, but well, you didn't mention that. Like, it, there's no real like good evidence that it works, and certainly no good evidence that it works for the people who are at the higher risk for having a bad reaction. That's right. So, if you also, um, so it seems like you guys are making some some changes to your practice. I mean, some some real world changes to the practice. Are there any other changes? I mean, you mentioned a handful. Um, are there any other changes that you guys are implementing that you think is appropriate that more people can kind of glom onto? And you know, because I, I think that you know one of the struggles with radiology. It, especially something like this is that there's so many things to keep up with. Like, you know, technology is advancing. Our understanding of disease processes is advancing. We're looking at the same diseases with different modalities that there's so much to keep up with. And then someone's like, oh, and you have to be an expert on contrast allergies. So like, what are, what are some things that like people can implement in their practice that can, you know, help, help unwind this that are you know, some low hanging fruit? Well, one thing that we already did several years ago has worked out very well and that was to change our patient questionnaire. When I came to the practice and for well over a decade into it, the old patient questionnaire that someone else wrote out asked the question, are you allergic to iodine? Mm -hmm. And once I started doing the research on this issue and realized that that term was nonsensical and confusing the issue and not good for patient care, I changed the questionnaire with the approval of the practice. So we changed that term from, are you allergic to iodine to, are you allergic to iodine-based contrast? And what we found was there was no increase in allergic reactions in the offices. So people, uh, nothing bad happened from it, but I then did a study that I haven't published in print, but I did present at the ACR annual meeting of quality and safety last fall. And we found that the technologists had the opinion that changing that questionnaire, just the, the terminology wording, made their patient prep for CT studies more streamlined and faster. Because by asking a more targeted and accurate question, are you allergic to intravenous iodine-based contrast, it was clear for the patients to answer and we didn't, we don't ask anymore about shellfish or other non-related allergies. So this is a question that's a little bit specific to IR and, you know, I apologize for not including an outline, but it just occurred to me. If you have a patient who has had a reaction to like a, a recent, like a non-ionic uh, contrast material like OmniPAIC, and then you have them for uh, a vascular or, or like a non-vascular procedure, like a body procedure, those patients are still, or it's always been my understanding as an interventional radiologist, those patients are still at risk for an allergic reaction if you inject this, like uh, say for an epidural uh, or an epidural steroid injection or a gallbladder drainage, uh, or if you're doing a nephrostomy tube. Is that right or am I off there? The less of the agent that's getting into the bloodstream typically means the less likelihood of a reaction. 
Okay, so, less likelihood, but maybe you're still at risk, but still less likelihood. It, it, yeah, I don't know that anybody would, would say absolute zero, but mm -hmm. it has to be less if it's not getting into the bloodstream where the immune uh, reaction or allergic-like reaction might occur. Okay, makes sense. But like what we're advocating here or what you're advocating is that if, we, if you do have a patient who's allergic to a specific contrast agent, then simply switching the agent is what needs to be the the standard protocol. And, and is there a paper to back that up or the research to back that up? There are several. I have a few actually written down in front of me because I used these as uh, references for my own study that has just come out in clinical imaging. So I'm just going to give you a few. Again, most of these are in the ACR manual on contrast media, but then there are a couple new ones. So there are several, and most of these are in the ACR Manual of Contrast Media references. And I've written a few out just as um, some examples. I have uh, Abe et al., European Radiology 2016, Chad et al., Radiology 2019. Uh, there were two studies by uh, different doctors, each named Park et al. One was in radiology 2018, one European radiology 2017. And then there was a study that just came out in August of 2021 um, from Mayo Clinic, McDonald et al., and that was in radiology. And that also showed that changing the agent is much more useful than steroid premedication. Awesome. And what we can do also, Cullen, is I can link to those articles for those who want to take a deep dive into this topic. And we've already re referenced the ACR manual, which is free. And we'll also post links to all the uh, articles that we just referenced. So for those who really want to do a deep dive, they'll be in the show notes. Usually a week later, you know how we can, we're, we're not super diligent about getting our show notes out, but usually we're about a week out from production. So Cullen, uh, another thing I want to ask you now, in in the long along the vein of uh, research, uh, can you give the audience the the crux or the uh, bullet points to uh, the paper that you recently published? Absolutely, I'd be honored to. So, because this subject has become such a clinical interest of mine, we did our own study because, again, you asked why is it that we're going to have uh, trouble making the changes that we need in terms of labeling contrast allergies by name. And it's always been my unquantified perception that patients know very little about their own contrast allergies and must let much less than they know about other medication allergies in general. And so that was what we looked at. We did a keyword search within our database and came up with a cohort of over 300 patients who have a confirmed contrast allergy. And we asked them some simple questions. The patients were very good at being able to describe their symptoms. So 87% of the patients with a prior allergy could describe the symptoms. And we removed the people who described symptoms just like flushing, nausea, vomiting. We didn't count those because we knew that those are just physiologic. But out of people who had more of a confident uh, contrast allergy, the patients uh, we're great at knowing their symptoms equal to other studies that in pharmacology uh, literature. But we asked the patients, when did your allergy occur? Because that's important to know if they know when their allergy occurred, that helps us determine if it was one of the older agents or one of the new. Only 37% could estimate the year when they had their reaction. An additional 7% said a long time ago and about 
57% just could not estimate when it had happened. Then we asked them, where did your reaction occur? And we would take either the city and state or the name of the hospital or clinic just to be inclusive, but only about 40% of the people could tell us where. 60 could not. And so that obviously tells you, you're not going to be able to get the old records the majority of the time if these people can't tell you. And again, our study was done on outpatients in a private practice, most of whom are coming in walkie-talkies. Uh, they either speak English or they have someone with them who does. So it would be even worse if you were talking about people coming into a hospital emergency room who are more acutely ill and less able to answer these questions. Then came the, the main question, which was, can you tell us the name of your contrast allergy? Now, other studies in pharmacology literature have estimated that before counseling with a pharmacist, patients are about 60 to 70% accurate in being able to name their drug allergies. And after counseling with a pharmacist, patients are maybe 80 to 95% accurate in terms of knowing their own allergies. But when we ask patients, can you name your contrast allergy? Would you care to guess what percentage could? 25%. 1 1.6. 1 1.6% of patients who have a contrast allergy were able to say which one it was. And that's, we've just got to do better than that because if patients don't know, then we're not going to be able to give them something different. So I even called because there were so few, five out of 307 patients who knew what they were allergic to, I even called them and said, you called, you called the five, listen, the five called patients. It was, a, it was a short list. So I called them and I said, why is it that you knew when most people did not? And the, the answer that I got repeatedly was when I had my reaction, the technologist or the radiologist told me what I had been injected with and they gave it to me in writing. Wow. So you asked what are changes people can do. That's one of the things we're going to do. Every time we get a patient back into our practice who's had a reaction, whether it's a new one today or a previous one, our goal is to print out for the people what they reacted to. We want them to list this on all of their uh, medical records by name, and that way we'll know what we can avoid in the future and give them something, something different. Have you guys worked with your EMR of choice, whether it's Epic or Cerner, to add the names of the contrast agents, like the specific contrast agents to help with documenting contrast allergies? The specific contrast agents are choices within the electronic medical records. We also use Epic. And if you want to type in that someone has an allergy to Omnipake, Isoview, Opteray, Visipake, whatever, you can do that. It's just that most people haven't narrowed that down. So the choices are there. The work that we need to do is to work with Epic or whichever uh, EMR system to have them not offer iodine as a choice, because as we've discussed, that was, uh, that's a nonsensical term that we don't want to encourage people to use. And we want people to be more selective and specific. So if that is a previously existing allergy, maybe there could be some drop down choices to narrow it down, whether it's a contrast agent or something unrelated like topical iodine soap or shellfish or something else. That's great work that y'all are doing. How, um, how long have you guys been documenting the exact contrast agent uh, in the EMR? Oh, when I say uh, we, this is um, not consistent at all. So it's something that I've started doing um, because of the, the research we've been doing. But the more 
comprehensive approach is something we're just starting in the outpatient practice. And it's going to take more time and more effort at the hospital because there are so many more people who use the system. Of course. Yeah. Sometimes it's uh, as much about education and outreach as, you know, there's always so much one person can do. So uh, good luck fighting the good fight. Well, thank you. It's going to be an uphill challenge, but it's in the patient's best interest and it's in our best interest too, because if it makes the workflow more efficient for the technologists and the radiologists, where every time a patient may have an allergy and everything comes to a grinding halt while you answer these questions for the umpteenth time, I think if people realize we're doing ourselves a favor by being accurate, that I'm hoping that the, uh, the pattern will pick up. Absolutely. So let me take a little bit of a left-hand turn. And instead of talking about uh, iodinated contrast, we talk about some MRI or gadolinium-based contrast agents. So specifically, not as much with uh, allergic reactions, although I think that you can have an allergic reaction to MRI contrast agents. Uh, can you speak a little bit about to the how often this occurs? It is less common. And the, the, the literature, again, a source like the ACR's Manual on Contrast Media can be more uh, specific with regard to larger studies. I know that in our study where we had a cohort of over 300 patients with an iodinated contrast allergy, only four people we had to exclude because they actually were not allergic to an iodine-based contrast, but claimed to be allergic to a gadolinium-based contrast. But what we did notice was not one of them specified gadavist, magnavist, eavist, whatever. The best they could say was gadolinium. And we know from the research that knowing which gadolinium-based MRI agent people have had is important because some of these agents are more prone or less likely to cause conditions kind of like nephrogenic systemic fibrosis. So we started out using MR contrast with impunity, not worrying about renal failure, et cetera, then realized that, hey, there are a few patients that are actually showing this condition. It's not common, but it's serious when it happens. And now that people have paid a little more attention to which agents cause it, it allows us to avoid having that and maybe again, start injecting with impunity as long as we use agents that don't cause uh, this condition. So I feel like you're really, that, that's a little bit uh, telling of how long you've been out in practice, Cullen, that um, you, were, you were part of uh, the age when if someone was allergic or had allergic contrast or had renal insufficiency, that you guys would just do uh, contrasted studies with MRI. That's absolutely right. We didn't care what their renal function was until we learned the hard way that it was important for some patients receiving some contrast agents. All right. And predictably, now the pendulum is starting to swing back in that NSF. So certainly serious, uh, uncommon, but when it does happen, it can be uh, quite debilitating. Well, there's still one more topic that I would be remiss if we didn't dive into a little bit. Will you tell me in the audience a little bit about what it was like uh, writing the book, looking within, understanding ourselves through the human imaging? So specifically, I just want to know how hard was it to actually write a book? Oh, it's an interesting question to answer. It was not hard in terms of being motivated at times because whenever an interesting case would happen, whether it be interventional or diagnostic, and there were both, I've got stories of angiograms gone wrong, biopsies, et cetera. Also just intriguing diagnoses made from x-rays, CT, other studies. The motivation wasn't, it wasn't that hard to say, wow, this is a really interesting case. There's something we can all learn from this. I don't just mean radiologists. I mean the public in general, but getting a book completed and 
you know, the process getting it published and into print, it's actually quite time consuming with a lot of turns and detours and challenges. And I'm glad I did it, but it's not something that people should do for the money because I don't think I'll be retiring one day earlier based on this book, but it was rewarding. It was rewarding to, to write something that other people have read and say, Hey, I really enjoyed this. I got something out of it. I think I understand your field a little better. I never knew this about radiology and that's been rewarding. So out of curiosity, how long did it take you, uh, from starting the process to getting something out where like you were, you know, you, you sold a book, like what was, uh, uh, start to finish. I'm embarrassed to tell you, Chris, I will answer the question. Um, keep in mind, there were long periods of time in the process where I was doing nothing with it. I would write for a while. And a lot of times when I would write would be say on a vacation sometime when I had the time to do it, because as most of our, our work days are, are busy enough, the writing was one thing, getting a literary agent was another Then having her try to find a publisher was another. And there's a lot of waiting while you get an agent, while you get a publisher. Ultimately the agent I had, I had a very good one in New York, but she was not able to get me a big publisher and that's all she deals with. So then it came time to find a smaller publisher, which also took time start to finish to answer your question. It was well over 15 years. Wow. But how did it feel when you sold your first couple of copies? It was exhilarating uh, because we know if you've ever gone over a study with a patient or a family member, you see that fascination when people look at the images and say, wow, that's what I look like on the inside, or I never knew you could, could tell this about a person. And it's not just the, the anatomy and the disease. When you look inside of somebody, it's kind of like having a crystal ball. Sometimes you're looking into someone's past or their potential future, given what their condition is. And so there's a, there's a lot we can learn. I'd read other books by other physician authors, and these were, were quite good. Everybody from neurologists, surgeons, ER doctors, internists, but I had never seen one by a radiologist. And that's what motivated me to write it because I know we have an interesting feel and I just wanted to get some stories out there. Each chapter is a patient story that just shows something interesting. And, and the beautiful, beautiful thing about my book is it's got pictures. <laughs> that's right. Of course. Picture heavy. It's been fun. I appreciate your asking again. I'm not planning on retiring any earlier from this book, but the reviews were good enough that Amazon made the book a, a daily special earlier this year on their digital version. And so it was really gratifying, even though it was so discounted that I didn't really make anything. It was really gratifying. Well, it's true, sure. but to know that in one day, nearly a thousand people bought it, th that was, it was, it was humbling. And uh, I just hope people enjoy reading it. I think that's really great. Uh, one, I think it was so uh, beautifully put how, and I never thought of it like that, that reading uh, a radiology study it's in a certain way, looking into someone's past and a certain way of looking into their future. And I have to admit, I think we take it for granted, but it can be, you know, it can be a really special experience for going over that with a patient. I think some people have practices and we even have uh, a form of this where we have some uh, executive wellness programs where we go over the imaging uh, with some of the patients and like kind of walk them through what we're seeing and they love it. They're just fascinated by it. They could sit at the, they could sit at the, uh, the viewing station all day and, and just keep asking questions like, what is this? And so I think that's really neat to, to shed some light on such a, a great specialty that we have and, uh, you know, bring it to the public. Fantastic. So as an ambassador to the radiology practice, you know, thanks, Cullen. Oh, my pleasure. I really appreciate your interest. All right. So if you don't mind, we'll include a link to that to whichever way is easiest to purchase it, whether it's Amazon or whether it's, you know, giving people, you know, the address to your house so they can come by and pick up a copy. We'll make sure we'll make sure we link to it in the show notes. 
To our audience, thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast but want more, check out the show notes of this episode. They're going to be robust. We're going to get those out to you as soon as possible. You can find those at www.backtable.com, easiest website name to remember ever. Um, You enjoyed the podcast and you want to support the show, here's two easy ways. First, take one second, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes, leave us a short written review, helps us in a lot of different ways. And if you end up loving uh, looking within, understanding ourselves with the human imaging, also leave uh, Dr. Ruff a, a great Amazon review. I know that helps him out in a lot of different ways. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back Table Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Vivek Prasad. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.